Amen. Well, I'm delighted uh, to come be able to share with you this morning, uh, both in here, in person, and of course, everyone online. Come on, can we give a welcome to everyone that's uh, dialing in online? So glad you guys are able to join in with us. Uh, so a number of weeks ago now, uh, I, I was able to uh, start a series. I'm always grateful whenever Pastor Randy gives me a chance to come and share with you on the weekend. And so a number of weeks ago, we started a series uh, called Also Starring. And the idea was that in the story of Jesus, um, there are, of course, you know, just like any other story, there are the main characters, Jesus, of course, being the hero. There are villains. There are supporting characters. Um, but then there are these background groups that are, uh, you know, just kind of around the scene, and they moved the story along. And so for the first week, we looked at the Pharisees. And then we spent some time, we looked at tax collectors and prostitutes. And then last week, we spent some time looking at the temple. Uh, And this week, we're going to spend some time and look at the Romans. Uh, The Romans. And just to make sure, um, you know, I'm setting this up as best I can. This is specifically about the life of Jesus. And so um, if I would say we're going to look at the Romans, I think a lot of people would think we're going to look at the biblical book of Romans. Um, But we're actually going to be looking at the Romans and the Roman Empire. And so I've got a number of notes here that I'd love to get through. And as uh, I've dug into this study, this also starring idea, I don't mind telling you, I've got more notes than I've got time. And so if it feels like I'm racing through this, I am, Um, but I promise that I'm hoping and I believe that there's something helpful for you because I can say for myself, as I've been preparing, as I've been digging into some study, it's been real helpful for me. So hopefully this is helpful for you. Uh, But a good question to ask is that at the time of Jesus, so 2,000 years ago, why were the Romans in Judea? Why were the Romans in Judea? Rome was about 2,500 miles away. And so why were the Romans in Judea uh, and in Jerusalem? And the short answer is that the Greeks, uh, specifically Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC, uh, started um, conquering and taking land and expanding the empire. And at the time, they moved into that Middle Eastern region. And pretty much the, the whole known world at that time had a level of Greek influence as Alexander the Great, an incredible uh, military general, someone that still look to today for military leadership as he began conquering land and, and occupying places. He essentially expanded this Greek uh, you know, culture all throughout the known world at the time. Um, and the goal that he set out that was quite unique because empires is nothing new. But what was unique for Alexander the Great is that he wanted to have a seal of, of Greekness if that is indeed a word, but he wanted there to be a very Greek flavor to everything that he was involved in conquering. And so the goal was for everyone to kind of have this Greek flavor to them. One of the things he instituted uh, was he made sure that the Greek language was spoken all over the known world. That ended up being helpful when the New Testament writers started writing their letters in Greek because it meant that the whole world at the time was able to read and understand the letters that the New Testament writers had written. Um, There was a form of architecture, there was a method of education, all these different things that were trying to be pushed through the whole world at the time as Alexander the Great uh, and others continued to expand the Greek influence in the world. They would also try and mix the religions um, of the people at the time. They would try and bring in, so one of the examples is that when they started having interactions with the Jewish people, they would hear about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, and they would try to say, well, that's kind of like Zeus and try and get people to kind of intermingle their beliefs with the Greek beliefs, thereby furthering the Greek culture all throughout the known world. Um, And really, as the Greeks' power and their influence faded over time, the Romans pretty much picked up where they left off. Um, Now, if there's any historians here, you may be very quick to say, well, that's oversimplifying things, and I will agree with you. But essentially, as the Greeks' influence and their power faded, all throughout the known world at the time, the Romans kind of stepped in where they left off, 
And so, uh, by, you know, this continual fighting, this continual bickering, uh, if you go through the history, there's so many names, dates, places um, that sort of go through this. I- I'll be honest with you. I've sat in college courses where we've gone through this stuff. I've listened to teaching on this. It is difficult to keep mentally in your mind. So let me summarize it like this. Through all the fighting and all the political interplay and all the upheaval that goes on, by the time we get to uh, the life of Jesus, the Romans had had power in there for uh, about 100 years. So about 100 years before the birth of Jesus, the Romans really consolidated power in that region of the world and really kind of had taken over that empire and kind of the interbickering almost had kind of uh, almost subsided. So the political upheaval in lots of ways, not entirely, I'm very careful to make big generalizations, but it went to a very stable period um, about 100 years before the life of Jesus. And the Romans, including in places like Judea, which is where uh, a lot of the New Testament, a lot of the life of Jesus takes place, uh, they would do things like they would install kings, which is how Herod ended up being the king. We learned a lot about that. That gentleman last week, we we'll, won't go any more about that. Uh, they set up tax collectors, which again, we've also uh, talked through. And then they would send the military forces to oversee things in the areas where they were holding power. So after centuries of wars, revolts, civil wars, conquests, rebellions, uh, the key becomes everything needs to calm down. So through all this fighting, all this uprising, all these rebellions, all these conquests that came at a huge expense, advancing an empire is not some cheap endeavor. And through all of this, this suddenly the the page kind of turned as we started getting into uh, the Emperor Augustus who ended up becoming known as Augustus Caesar, the first emperor that kind of went by that title and held that uh, emperor position that we come to know and, you know, pretty typical in Roman culture. But the key became, we need to calm things down. Things need to chill out. This whole advancing the empire thing, this whole conquest thing is very, very expensive. The whole point of having an empire is that I become very rich and powerful. And so rather than trying to take new land, instead of trying to quash these, let's just calm everything down and let's keep the taxes rolling back to Rome. And so that became the name of the game for the Romans by the time we get to the life of Jesus. So Augustus, who was the emperor when the time Jesus was born, uh, you know, his philosophy was that the best way as an emperor to get rich and powerful was to just keep everything peaceful. And this became known as Pax Romana, which is the Latin for the peace of Rome. Now, the point of having an empire was to get rich and powerful and conquering more land and battles and supporting a vast military and active military. This is expensive things to do, so it eats in to the whole getting rich thing. And so let's turn this around and let's get into a time of peace and let's fortify what we've already conquered. And so some elements of, of Roman culture, you know, again, they continue what the Greeks started by advancing Roman culture throughout the known world, not just in Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, the places that uh, we find the New Testament, but all over the known world at the time. So we would have things like Roman roads, things like aqueducts, things like uh, the Roman kinds of entertainment. But to promote peace, because remember, this is the key right now. This is the key. When we get to the life of Jesus, the key of the Roman Empire is wherever they have influence, which was everywhere, we want peace. So to promote peace, even though there would be some Roman influences through things like architecture and education, entertainment, things like that, but there were aspects of culture and community that they wanted to keep as local as possible to maintain peace. Not because they loved it, not because they respected it, but because they wanted everyone to just chill out. So for instance, that's why we find Herod was able to build the temple in Jerusalem. The Romans permitted that because it was a way of maintaining peace amongst the people who looked to that as a place where they could grow their faith. 
That's why that uh, Herod was allowed to um, you know, have an influence on who was going to be the high priest. And it wasn't something that the Romans said, yeah, let this person do it. That's why the Jewish people were allowed to maintain the customs and the festivals and the uh, Jewish holidays that they celebrated each time. That's why the Romans didn't put an end to that is because they wanted to maintain peace in there. That's why the, the level of government that was happening. Uh, so the fact that there was the Sanhedrin, which was, you read about in the New Testament, this is a, a Jewish group that would make political decisions and have levels of influence all throughout Jewish society. That's why that Herod was allowed to have his own private police force and that there was a temple guards that were allowed to be armed and ready for action when called upon. It was all in the name of, you can do this so we can have peace, but don't forget who's in charge. You can have your temple. We'll let you guys have a king. But don't forget for a moment who's in charge. And that was how the Roman Empire wanted to keep peace. And we especially see this in Jerusalem in the Bible as we look at the Romans that are trying to maintain peace. They don't want any uprisings. That's expensive. They don't want to have to send more troops from Rome to take care of Jerusalem. That's expensive. That's a waste of money. That's money that could be going to the emperor. We want everything to calm down and chill out. And the way we're going to do this is let these people have a little bit of their local customs, a little bit of the religion that they're used to, a little bit of way of life that they're accustomed to, but they need to remember who's in charge. And that became the message of the Roman Empire, especially in places like Jerusalem. You can be free, but not too free. And there's fair reason uh, for the people of Jerusalem to be suspicious as the Romans try and have a level of oversight here. Uh, many years earlier, Antiochus IV, who was a Greek rather than a Roman, but uh, still in that same Hellenistic culture, he erected idols inside the temple itself. He stole money from the te uh, temple treasury, and he even went as far as to sacrifice pigs on the altar in the temple. The abomination of desolation. This, 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 this Greek man that came in and absolutely disgustingly completely undermined everything that the Jews stood for, something that was so important to them. They completely desecrated the temple. And so now, fast forward a few centuries, but that memory still lives on. It was that incident that led rise to the rebellion that is still celebrated today in Hanukkah. And that rebellion still stuck in people's minds as they celebrated it every year. These people are not to be trusted. You can be free, but not too free. You can have some leeway. There can be some things that you enjoy. A, you know, we're, we're going to make some, some good things are happening, but don't forget who's in charge. There is good reason for the Jewish people at this time, at the time of Jesus, that they would be deeply suspicious about their Roman overlords. And the Romans themselves, the Roman soldiers, they hated being assigned to their position in Judea. I mean, think about it this way. They could have been sent to Rome where they can eat pizza all day and watch soccer. Come on, somebody. Or then go to some desert to a place where everybody hates them and wishes they were gone. So the Romans themselves deeply resented being there. Uh, the military at the time, as you can imagine, you would normally conscript people from the local community, but you couldn't do that with the Jewish men because every seven days they needed a day off. Well, that don't work in the military. They had very strict dietary requirements because eating kosher, as per the Old Testament, that's very expensive to have a second menu option for all your soldiers. And they needed time off throughout the year to celebrate the diff uh, different annual festivals as prescribed in the Old Testament. So at the end of the day, the Romans said, forget it, don't join the military. So they had to send more reluctant troops to Jerusalem to keep an eye on things. So there's a great fraction between the Jewish people and the Romans at the time of Jesus. But the Jews were a people of promise. They were a people of promise. 
The whole Old Testament, if you were to read it, you would find out that there are promise after promise that God would make to his people. This is who I am. This is how I want you to live with each other. This is the relationship, how I want it to go. This is how much I love you. This filled with the promises of God and the Jewish people, many of them, the vast majority is what the impression we can get from history, clung onto those promises and didn't bend the knee to the Roman Empire. Some even went as far as to become zealots, which is a title you'll read about. If you've read the New Testament, you'll see that word pop out. That was a name given to a militia group that was adamant that they were gonna overthrow Rome by force. But the promise of God was not to live under Roman rule. The promise of God was to be the head and not the tail. The promise of God was to be above and not beneath. And it kind of brings us to um, Pontius Pilate, who is probably the, the Roman in the whole New Testament that is spoken about the most. And he's a key part in the story. And if you know the story about Jesus and you know the story of the crucifixion, you'll know the name well. But as far as history goes, we actually don't know a whole lot about Pontius Pilate. There's some speculation. Um, But he's featured in all four Gospels. The book of Acts, as it records the apostles teaching about the moment when Jesus was crucified, point to Pontius Pilate as a key moment where that happened. But we don't know a whole lot about him. We know that he was vicious and we know that he was deeply unpopular among the Jewish people. But he was sent to Jerusalem uh, by Rome to act as a procurator. Some Bible translations uh, will translate that word procurator to be governor. But it's basically, he's the head Roman honcho in Jerusalem at the time. Again, he had one job, to keep the peace so that the money can keep flowing to Rome. That was the only job he had. That we got to keep everything chilled out. We got to keep this peaceful. We got to keep this level of calm. Because if there's calm, the money keeps rolling in. If there are problems... It disrupts the flow of money heading to Rome. So we have this man, Pontius Pilate, vicious. And he's there. The only reason you get that position of being a procurator in Jerusalem is that you're a highly ambitious person that wants to climb the ladder in the Roman Empire. You want to get closer and closer to the top. The problem is you have to be ambitious to get that job, but ambitions go to Jerusalem to die. You're going to some desert outpost. There's not a great promotion coming after that. So here's this man who's deeply ambitious, who wants to climb the ladder, and he is in the last position that someone ambitious would want to be sent to, and that's where he is. His number one job is to try and keep this whole place calm with a whole bunch of people that are deeply suspicious of you and your empire and your Caesar. They don't respect you, and on top of everything else, they've got these zealots that keep springing up, trying to cause rebellions left and right through military force. And Judea at the time had a reputation of being the most rebellious place in the empire. And that is what Pilate is up against. And then one morning, he wakes up between a rock and a hard place. One day, the religious people that he's likely contesting with regularly, generally making his life difficult, wake him him up and he's, he's got a prisoner with them. And the prisoner is tied up and they demand that Pilate kill him. So the Jewish authorities, they, they had the ability to handle um, you know, most crimes in-house. They had the ability to punish people, you know, most, you know, most things that would come up day-to-day living. They had the ability to take care of themselves. But when it came to execution, that had to be authorized by Pilate. And the only reason that the Romans killed people was to benefit Rome. And so Pilate knew when these men dragged in this prisoner, tied up, making all sorts of crazy accusations, he knew he was being manipulated. Because they don't care about the things of Rome. But they know that if they're going to get this man to kill the person they've dragged in, it has to be for Rome's benefit, not anyone else's. 
So here's Pilate knowing he's being manipulated by the people that have dragged this prisoner in to come see him. And as Pilate tries to figure out what on earth he's going to do with Jesus of Nazareth, he realizes he is stuck between a rock and a half place. Because half the city thinks this man is incredible and they threw a party as he entered a few days earlier on a donkey. The other half wants him dead. One half hangs on every word this man says thinking that he's a prophet. And the other half is outraged that he stormed through the temple just a few days earlier flipping tables. And here's Pilate, got to make a decision about what to do with this prisoner that's been dragged in front of him. And his only objective is, how do I keep the peace? How do I get everyone just to chill out so that we don't have any problems with this whole thing? And as Jesus stands before him, Pilate knows he can't win. And famously in Matthew's gospel, we have Pilate washing his hands, very literally, I'm out. I'm out. There's nothing I can do. There's no way that I can make a decision, that I can give a verdict that's going to keep this thing peaceful. There's a whole set of... I'm out. I'm out. I I don't know what I can possibly do with this. He then orders Jesus flogged and beaten and then on to death by crucifixion. But Pilate had no idea that he had initiated the coronation of the King of Kings. He had no idea as he sent Jesus to the cross, this man acting in total ignorance had no comprehension that he had just sent the King of Kings after his coronation. Come on, if one person claps and one person amens, we may as well all do it. Come on, line. Don't mind me. Gee whiz. All right. How are we doing? Everyone okay so far? All right. All right, if you got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 27, then we're going to flip over to John 19. If you don't have your Bible, no dilemma. It's going to be on the screen. But this is the aftermath of Pilate sending Jesus to the soldiers. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his hand as a scepter. They knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it when they were finally tired of mocking him. A quick side note, the only reason they stopped is that they were exhausted from doing it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. And I'm flipping over a few pages, going to be in John 19, starting in verse 19. This is Jesus on a cross. He's already been there. His hands have been smashed on the piece of wood. And Pilate does this. Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, this was a common thing that would happen is that if you were going to crucify a criminal is that you would write on the sign above their head their crime so people could see it. Verse 20, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priest objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, no, what I have written I have written. The king of kings was 
incarnated in a way that no earthly king ever would be. Kings don't get crucified and then recognized as the king of the world. But Jesus was different. The Roman soldiers had no idea as they placed that crown on his head by way of mocking him that they were putting a crown on the only king that could set them free. They had no idea as they put a robe on him, as they put that scepter in his hand to make fun of him. They had no idea what they were kickstarting. They had no idea that that crucifixion would elevate Jesus to a place that you and I could never ever imagine at the right hand of the Father as the only king of the world, the only king that would come and pay a price so the people could be a part of his kingdom. Had no idea. And as Pilate wrote on that sign, the king of the Jews, he had no idea that he was declaring to the world in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, here is the king of the Jews, the king of the world. Had no idea what they were doing. Because this is in such stark contrast to how the empire thought about kings. What the empire thought about emperors. And the Bible makes no attempt to try and get this to make sense. The biblical writers are very comfortable that this is craziness, that you would crucify someone and then declare them king. This made no sense, and the biblical writers are very, very comfortable with that reality, that there is no way, as Jesus died on the cross, that anybody with any logical reason would look at that and say, there's a king. But the God of the Bible is different. The kingdom of God is different from the empire. Let me share with you, uh, this is from my favorite psalm, Psalm 113, verse 5. Who can be compared with the Lord our God? God is not like other people. God is not like what you're used to. Who can be compared with the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? He stoops down on heaven and on earth. He lowers himself. If you want to read Philippians 2 this afternoon, you'll see this thought expounded upon. He stoops down to look on heaven and on earth. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. The Roman Empire and the kingdom of God that Jesus initiated are very, very different. And it's highlighted in how the kingdom of God appointed the king. See, victory in the kingdom is in giving life, not defeating others. Victory in the kingdom is in bringing freedom, not taking captives. Victory in the kingdom is in sacrifice, not grabbing for money and power. The first thing I'd invite you to write down if you're taking notes today, and it's always a great idea to do so, the first thing I'd invite you to write down is the kingdom defeats the empire. The kingdom defeats the empire. And what was somewhat confusing at the time is that Jesus didn't come to take the place of Caesar, which is what many were expecting as a great military leader, a great royal leader that was going to come and take charge and kick Caesar off the throne and install uh, you know, their own messianic leader there. But instead, Jesus came to bring an entirely new kingdom that wouldn't fit into the box that the world had created for empires and kingdoms in the past. And there's a, a verse in the book of Romans. I said we weren't going to be spending all our time in there. I didn't say we weren't going to be there at all. But Romans 10.9 If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is a powerful verse. If one person claps, we all have to. And then it's a good excuse for me to take a drink break. Thank you so much. If you declare that Jesus is Lord, now this is easy to miss as we read this verse or we hear this verse talked about. 
That phrase, Jesus is Lord, is a loaded phrase. See, at the time that Paul was writing this to the, the Christians that were in Rome itself, Nero was emperor. And Nero, unlike Augustus, who we'd read about a little earlier, but by the time we get to Nero, he was obsessed with emperor worship. He was obsessed with being worshiped as a deity, by being worshiped as a God himself. And so people were expected to say the phrase, Caesar is Lord. You can worship your other deal. You can worship your other gods, that's fine, as long as you recognize Caesar is Lord. And in that vein, the Christians turned this around and said, hold on, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, we will not bow the knee. But here we see that um, here Paul, and I believe it's consistent with the New Testament, is making a comparison between how Jesus runs things and how he lords over his kingdom is different to how the world does this. And so we're gonna have a quick look, and I've got four ways that I think are helpful, um, I really hope that are um, hopefully challenging in some ways about how the kingdom of God is different from the empire. And this is not an exhaustive list. If you spent more time thinking about this, I'm sure you could come up with some other things, but I've got four. Are we okay to go through four things? Come on, somebody, we all good. Okay, the first thing is, the empire demands peace. The kingdom promises peace. The empire demands peace. Remember, if there's uprising, if there's rebellions, stops the flow of money to Rome. We don't want that. But the kingdom promises peace. The kingdom promises peace. See, the peace that's demanded, how heartfelt can that truly be? And some of you right now, uh, you're gonna be doing family Christmas pictures. And so you got the little guys and you have to demand peace, we are going to take this picture. We want everybody to know we're a happy family and we love each other. Or I'm gonna set fire to all your presents. I would never say that. Oh no, Megan's here, she knows I'm lying. Okay, demanding peace, demanding peace. But the kingdom promises peace. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word. It's still used uh, as a greeting among Jewish people today. That's the word shalom. And very simply, it's translated as peace. A, a very straightforward way to translate that is just as the word peace. But it's not just about the, the absence of conflict or the absence of war. It really is. It's a very rich word, but a very simple way of saying it is that it's, it's about wholeness and completeness. It's about being complete in every area of life. So as someone is greeted with shalom, it's about you know, every area of your life, I hope that it is complete. I hope that there is an absence of conflict in every area of your life. That's what the word peace means. And if we look at the Old Testament as a book of the promises of God, this is a promise of God, is that there is peace that we can have. And as we look at 2 Corinthians, I love this verse, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory in Jesus. We find the fulfillment of that promise of peace. Amen. We find that promise of peace fulfilled in him. And I wanna say this because I think it's very easy to stand up here and say this. But if you're not experiencing this peace, this completeness that we read about in the Bible, what I wanna ask is, is please let someone know. Online, if you're not feeling this peace, if that isn't how you would describe life right now, I'm asking, please let someone know. You might not find someone that can fix everything, 
but a great first step is to find out that someone cares. So if you're going through, if life is not all peaceful right now, please don't do this alone. Don't let it be something that you're struggling with, isolated. Please reach out, let somebody know, and at least you'll know that somebody cares with you. Amen? Second thing, the, king, uh, the empire is filled with anonymous citizens. The kingdom is filled with treasured children. The empire is filled with anonymous citizens. The kingdom is filled with treasured children. Book of John says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, talking about Jesus, he, Jesus, the king of this kingdom, gave the right to become children of God. But the empire, with all these anonymous citizens, the objective was control through manipulation, violence, threat, generally just have everyone living in fear. Just keep everybody down, just keep everybody oppressed, keep everyone afraid. These anonymous citizens, God doesn't look at you or I as anonymous citizens. He looks at us as treasured children. Have the right to be called the children of God. I'm gonna move on expediently. I hope that's okay. But the third thing is that the Jewish people, they didn't bend the knee to the Romans because they trusted in the promises of God. And why would you trust the empire that is working so hard to keep you down instead of living in freedom? The empire advanced by keeping you down. The kingdom advances by raising you up. The empire advanced by keeping you down, by keeping you limited, by keeping you afraid, by keeping you subdued, by keeping you quiet. That's how the empire moved forward. But the kingdom advances by raising you up. We already read this from Psalm 113. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. I had a friend of mine, this was in another church that Megan and I were pastoring in, and there was a, a guy in the church and I would see him on Sunday morning and we'd always have a couple of minute chats and he was one of those guys where if you extended your ha- you know, hand for a handshake, he'd brush it aside and give you a big hug. Well, this dude's like 6'5", and I'm 6'2", so I'm a pretty big guy and it's pretty unusual for me to be hugged by someone and have their chin resting on my head, but that was this guy and we caught up for lunch one day and we'd only had you know, some 30 second, minute and a half conversations before, nothing really in depth. It's the first time I was really getting to meet with him. And as the conversation was going on, he just says, you know, well, you know how I became a Christian, right? I was, no, what's, what's the story? He went on to tell me that years before, I think it was seven years at that point, seven years before, he was a big time drug dealer in New Jersey. Incredibly violent. His family had an awful reputation for being violent and people you don't want to mess with and all the problems that go with drug dealing and all the different violent aspects that go with that. He was right in the middle of it and he gets arrested. And as he's waiting trial, uh, he comes across a Christian, hears the message of Jesus and gets saved. And he goes to prison, does his time as a Christian, gets out. And I can tell you today, he is a completely changed man. Completely changed man. Well, the reason I say that story and the reason that it stuck with me so deeply is that if you met him today, you would never in a million years guess that this was an angry, violent person that used to do awful, unspeakable things to people as a drug dealer. You'd never guess it. I certainly didn't. I just knew him as the big guy that liked to give me hugs on the weekend. And to find out that this person did awful things, awful things, shocking to me. 
and is a powerful example of how God completely transforms someone's life by transforming their heart. The empire advances by keeping people down. The kingdom advances by raising people like my friend up out of desperate, awful situations and sitting them among the princes, even the princes of his people. Fourth thing, the empire was fueled by fear. The kingdom is founded on love. The empire was fueled by fear. The kingdom is founded on love. And if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the beginning of the story, you have Adam and Eve that are living in absolute perfection. It wasn't pretty cool. It was absolutely perfect. Complete perfect relationship with each other, complete perfect relationship with God. They sinned. It all messed up. And in that middle of it being messed up, before they had a chance to talk with God about it, they hid. And when God comes and says, hey, what's going on? We heard you coming. We were afraid. So we hid. Fear. That was the first time in all of human history that people experienced fear. We heard you coming. We were afraid. So we hid. And the empire is filled, filled with terrified people, hoping they don't have to have a brush with Rome today. The church and the kingdom should be filled with people that can't wait to meet with the Heavenly Father because they are that confident that he loves them, even if they messed up, even if they did something that breaks his heart. They know that he is motivated purely by a love for you and a love for me. John 15, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one friend, one's friends. No Roman empire, uh, emperor would ever say that. No emperor would ever say, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you by laying down my life for you. No emperor would ever go to the cross willingly believing that this was this initiation to true power and true status as the Lord of Lords. No Roman emperor would ever have done that. And Jesus didn't just say it, he did it. He did it. And it's through this love of God that was demonstrated on the cross that the kingdom defeats the empire. That the kingdom with a different set of values is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. But in the most brutal coronation ceremony ever, Jesus takes his place as king of kings. And it's time to put that empire thinking behind us. It's time to be done. Come on, everybody. It's time to be done. God is not demanding peace while beating us down. You are not an anonymous citizen to God. God's kingdom doesn't advance by keeping you down. God loves you too much to want you to live in fear of him. But instead, this is good news, the kingdom promises a peace that surpasses all understanding. The kingdom is filled with people who have the right to be called children of God. The kingdom advances by raising you up and sitting you among the princes of his people. The kingdom is founded on the kind of love that lays down its life for one's friends. This is some good news that the kingdom has defeated the empire. I've got a couple of questions for you. I'm going to take a sneaky drink break. Where has the empire thinking formed your attitude towards the kingdom? 
Where has empire thinking formed your attitude towards the kingdom? And there might be something that's coming to mind right now, even something that hasn't been mentioned in the message today, but where has that empire thinking come in? Would Jesus and his kingdom would do it a different way? You know, online chat, you might even have something that you want to put in. But what are some of those empire thinking that has formed your attitude towards the kingdom? And the second question is, are you enjoying the peace God promised? Are you enjoying the peace God promised? For the Roman Empire, peace was a means of getting more and more money to Rome. We're going to keep everything calm. We're going to keep everything chill. We've got to keep an eye on everything. Squash that rebellion over there. Take care of that over here. All of it so that money could keep flowing to Rome. But the peace of God is not demanded. It's promised. And if you're not enjoying that right now, please let somebody know that you just have an absence of peace right now. And I promise, we might not be able to fix everything, but I promise you will find somebody that cares. And you'll find somebody that will walk through with you and pray with you and try and be a best support as humanly possible to you. And there's a moment in the life of Jesus where James and John, who were two of the disciples, they had some empire thinking. They had some empire thinking about what greatness would look like. And they thought that getting the best seat next to Jesus was the ticket to moving up in his kingdom. And Jesus reassures them how wrong they are In Mark 10, starting verse 41, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people. You know that the rulers in the empire, you know that Caesar, you know that Pilate, you know that the Roman soldiers lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, in my kingdom, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. That ransom for many, of course, is demonstrated on the cross, as we've already talked about, as Pilate sent him off to get beaten by the soldiers, as Pilate hung that, cro- that sign on the cross, Jesus then went up and was crucified. And what's fascinating about crucifixion is that in the gospel accounts, we don't have a lot of details about crucifixion. See, at the time in the first century, they all knew what crucifixion was about, and so they don't need to give any details because you say the word and it brings to mind the image of exactly what went on in a crucifixion. Well, the problem is by by the time they started painting pictures of the crucifixion hundreds of years later, they'd stopped doing crucifixions. And so it's really, as you start to look at the classical pictures of a crucifixion, it's someone's best guess of what a crucifixion would look like. And since then, archaeologists have been able to find the, the bones of people that were crucified and have been able to piece together what a crucifixion was really like. And it's somewhat different than the pictures that you and I have come to know as pictures of the crucifixion. So the picture that you and I know is kind of, you know, like this, and Jesus got his head to one side. And there's a number of differences with that as the reality of the crucifixion that Jesus went to so that you and I could be a part of the kingdom. The first thing is, is that 
on the pictures that we all see in classical pictures and what's become known as the, the typical picture is that Jesus has some modesty cloth on. That's a complete fabrication. Crucifixion victims were completely naked because the idea was to shame them. The whole point of a crucifixion was to maintain peace for the benefit of Rome. And the way you do that is by anybody getting out of line, you're gonna find out you mess with Rome, this is what happens. So to bring complete and utter shame, these people were stripped naked. They had to carry their cross through the streets naked, everybody knowing where they're on their way to. So then Jesus gets to the site where he's gonna be crucified. And the Romans, they nail through the wrist onto the cross, onto the upright beam. And it wasn't sort of like a T-shape, it was more like a Y-shape. And then with the feet, it wasn't like this with one nail going through onto a little bit of support block of wood. That's not how they did it, but rather it was through the Achilles tendon right here. And with one nail, one nail would go through both Achilles tendons onto the upright beam. And one nail would go through, and that's how you would hang there, in a Y shape with a nail through your Achilles tendons. And they would hang you onto a cross and they would lift you up. And there was about a two foot hole that the cross would drop into. And what would happen is that when the cross would drop in, that shunt would cause both shoulders to be dislocated. So now you have a choice. If you want to breathe, you either have to pull up on two dislocated shoulders or you have to push up on your Achilles tendon that's been jammed with a giant nail. And you did that until you breathe your last. It was an awful, evil way to die. And by the way, this is after you just got a pasting from some Roman soldiers that didn't stop until they were so exhausted they couldn't beat you anymore. The Romans did it to try and remind everybody to stay in line so that they could demand peace. Jesus did it so that you could have a fully realized promise of peace in your life by having a healed and whole relationship with him. And that image of, of crucifixion, as brutal as it is and as graphic as it is, it's an incredible reminder to us of how much God values you and values me, that he would go to the cross and do that. Incredible reminder. My favorite verse in the Bible is again from the book of Romans, chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrates his great love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus went through that on the cross. Not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we got our act together, not when we started behaving ourselves, not when we started our relationship with Him, not when we started apologizing, not when we tried to start fixing the mistakes we've made in our lives. In the middle of our mess, Jesus took a supernatural first step by becoming the King of Kings on that cross so that we could have a healed and whole relationship with Him. If you're here today, whether you're watching online, and in a moment of honesty, you would say, you know what, I'm not following Jesus. I hope that this truthful reality that he went through that so that you could be in a relationship with him, so that you could follow him. I hope that something clicked for you today and you're ready to start. You're ready to start following him. So I wanna invite everyone in here. If you don't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, this is just give privacy to those around you. 
But if you're ready today to say, you know what, I'm not following God, but I wanna start today. I wanna follow Him. I haven't got it all figured out, but I'm ready to take the first step. If that's you today, I'd love for you to just put your hand in the air just for a moment, just so I know who I'm praying for in just a moment. Amen. Anybody else here? I promise we're not gonna do anything weird. We're gonna do anything to embarrass you. But when we pray in just a moment, I'd love to know who we're including in that prayer. Anybody else this morning? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hand down once it's up. It's just for me, so I know who we're praying for. Anybody else today? Amen. Come on, Word of Life Church, can we please celebrate people finding God in here today? We're going to pray a prayer together. I don't invite everybody here to pray this with me. The words are going to be on the screen. I'm going to say a line and you can repeat it back after me. And I can tell you from my own experience and from listening to stories of many, many people, you pray a prayer like this and you believe it, things start to change. Life starts to look different after you pray a prayer like this. So come on everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate freedom, peace. For those of you online, if anybody was brave enough and courageous enough to push that button, I would ask you just to let somebody know by pushing the button on there that says, I raise my hand. If you prayed that prayer, just press that button that says, I raise my hand. We'd love to help you figure out what a next step might be. For those of you that are right here, I want to welcome back Annie and Stacy as they come and help us figure out what a next step might be. Yes. Thanks, guys. Yes.